Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. And so I invite you to stand with me as we look together at God's Word this morning. We're looking together at Matthew 19, verse 30. It's the last verse of Matthew 19 through verse 16 of chapter 20. Matthew 19. Okay, I hope you have some Bible with you that you can look at, follow along. I know it's put up there, but it's not put up there during the remainder of the sermon, and it's important to be looking, have your phone out, have your Bible open to this passage. Matthew 19.30, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out into his vineyard, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius, which is a day's wage, okay? That's, you know, it's like, what would it be today, $200, something like that. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only in one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same amount as to you. Is it lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first. And the first last. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternally true. And I ask, Father, that as I speak, that it may not come to this congregation in word only, but also with power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There is a term that some of you may have heard of it's called the word is think from the latin pericope pericope p-e-r-i-c-o-p-e it's pronounced pericope and it refers to 
a unit of scripture. Um, something that's, that's tied together. Usually it's used of the gospels, you know. And very often the definition of a pericope, you might argue about what it is, whether the pericope, it's something that you'd preach on. You know, it's a, a, a coherent passage that you'd preach on. But in the gospels, sometimes it's, we lose track of the, of the, of the whole forest for the trees. And, uh, and sometimes a pericope is broader. You can break it down, but if you break it down into sub-pericopes, you, you lose sight of the whole. And I'm afraid that that is something that could happen in the passage that we've been in and that we conclude. It's this pericope, however long it is, it, it concludes with this portion this morning and we move to something else. And we can know that we're moving to something else because the next verse after the concluding verse of what we just read, verse 17 says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 aside by themselves on the way he said to them. So you understand that there's a clear break at that point. Um, and that break is, is physical in the life of Christ and the disciples. It's not just an artifact of the authorship of Matthew writing it. You know, it's, it's, it's a clear break and a, you're coming to something different. So it's kind of unfortunate, I think, that the, the people who divided scripture, we shouldn't complain about them. We should thank them for the, the excellent job they did in most of scripture by, adding, by dividing it into chapters and verses. It's not inspired it's the work of men who did this just so that we'd know how to find things within the, within the books. But, um, you know, generally we only complain. Um, and so as I'm saying, I think this is an unfortunate division. Let me say I'm very grateful that they did that. But at this point, I, I really think that to, that to divide chapter 20 from chapter 19 is probably unfortunate and mistaken because... If you look, Matthew 20 ends with Jesus saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then he tells this, this parable, right? And then he ends the parable by a repetition of what he just said. So the last shall be first and the first last. So I, I think it's, very, it's probably very obvious to, to all of us that, that if the first, the last shall be first, and the first last is part of the preceding that this portion is as well because Jesus repeats the same statement at the end of this. And I, I would say to you, I think it's quite clear that that is actually the case, that, that chapter 19, the whole chapter, and through verse 16 of chapter 20 is a, is a coherent unit in a sense, a pericope. Now, 19 begins with Jesus departing from Galilee and coming into the region of Judea, large crowds, and it begins with this, this teaching that was spawned by a Pharisee coming to Christ, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus teaches on divorce. Then, and here we come to the heart of where I would say this portion really begins because that seems to be separate but it seems like when the children are brought to him and and it continues on to the rich young ruler Matthew at least in the events of this day are 
are woven together in a way that is consistent and, and teaches us one thing throughout. That one thing which ends at the end of the passage which we just read together. And so beginning in verse 13 of 19, children, after this testing and the teaching of Jesus on divorce, children are brought to him so that he may lay his hands on them. The disciples, remember, rebuke those who bring the children. Jesus says, let the little children alone. Don't hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now, that passage, there's a break between it and verse 16. Obviously, Jesus is in a new location. But that passage is woven with what follows in the mind of Matthew. And in the inspiration of God. Because the very next story is about the rich young man who comes to Jesus asking, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? And he says, why are you asking me that? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And the young man says, I've kept them all. And Jesus says, oh, all right. But there's one that you haven't. He knows his wealth. He knows his reliance on his wealth. He knows that he loves his wealth. He says to him, go and sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have riches in heaven, and then come and follow me. And the young man goes away grieved, sad, because he's very wealthy. He goes away, but he will not do it. The little child comes and rests in Jesus. This man rests in his wealth. Jesus is saying, how do you enter heaven? You you enter it by becoming like a little child. You understand? This is all about how you enter heaven. Who enters heaven? It's not about divorce. That's separate. But this is consistent. How do you enter heaven? Who enters the kingdom of God? Disciples um, are struck because after the young man goes away, Jesus says, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus adds, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples go, whoa, baby, you can't mean that. Jesus, because they understand this to apply to them. And they're saying, well, then who can enter the kingdom of heaven? They're not saying, oh, this applies to Donald Trump and this applies. They're understanding Jesus. And, and if they understand Jesus to mean it for, to them, to be speaking to them, because they're, they're kind of prosperous, middle-class working men, it applies to you and it applies to me. If the disciples see this as applying to them, there is no, there are a few here who might be able to say that doesn't apply to me, wealth. But for Americans in this day, it applies to you. For Americans who have social security and IRAs and all these things and don't really have to worry because their future is taken care of by the government and by their business and by their own wisdom, it applies to you, all right? How many of you would say, I'm, a, I'm poor this morning and defend it? <laughs> I, I, I suspected no one would raise their hands. I think there probably are some poor people, truly poor people here. But if you're not saying I'm poor, then what are you? Right? Even by your own self-definition, you say, I'm not poor. 
This applies to you. This is God's word to you. All right? So the disciples hear this and they say, then who can be saved? And looking at Jesus, at the, at the disciples, Jesus says, with people this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So Peter then says to him, look, Lord, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? In other words, look, we've, we've been like the child. We're not like that rich young ruler. We're, we've really, we've left it all for you, Jesus. Is there something for us? You know, like, are we in that wealthy group? We've put it aside. We're fine, Jesus says. Oh, I tell you that you have followed me in the regeneration. In other words, when everything's made new at the end of time, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon 12 thrones. You'll judge the nations. You'll judge the 12 tribes. Yes, if you live like a child. You accept what Jesus says. You put him first. You trust his word. Oh, the reward. Now he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many, and here it comes to the first time. Actually, let me just pause and say, when he says this, you will receive many times as much. The other gospels make clear it's in this life. It's not just in the life to come. God will bless you in this life if you put him first, if you are like a child and obey him and give up your money and give up your reliance on you and start relying on him and doing the counterintuitive, revolutionary things that Jesus demands of his followers. Jesus says, you'll see how beneficent my father is. You'll see how rich he is. You'll see how much he loves his children. You won't just have to wait until eternity to see some reflection of the glory of God. It will be here in this life. And I'm telling you, this is true. So, he then adds, but many who are first will be last, and the last first, and then he tells the parable about the landowner, and he concludes it by saying, so the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Now, I want to speak this morning to those of you who are considering life, primarily to those of you who are considering life, a life of ministry. A life in the pastorate. And I'm speaking to everyone. It's true for everyone. But I want to speak to those of you who have set this as a goal. I want to, I want to put this to you in particular. I was reading a book about um, Calvin and Geneva with the Pastors College class this morning. Uh, last Tuesday morning. And... Uh, and one of the interesting things that the book makes clear is that in the aftermath of the Reformation, there was, as Stephen Osmond, the Harvard historian, I believe, says that no class of, of individual was more affected by the Reformation than the clergy. It was a radical revolution for the clergy more than anyone else. Those priests who left Rome, the security of Rome, and became Protestant ministers, the, the divisions, the, they said it was really a crazy time for the clergy. 
And the clergy of those days who left Rome came in many cases under the ban. When Calvin would send young men from his and their wives from his pastor's college in Geneva back to France where he was under the, the ban, he could be put to death by anyone who found him. When he'd send them back, Historians of Calvin say that it was not infrequent. I don't remember how many. It was like almost half of those they sent out were killed. And in the middle of the night, Calvin and his wife would be woken up by a young mother with babies and children coming in terror in the middle of the night because her husband had been killed as the pastor sent to France. Now there is the call of the pastor. You live for the flock. You don't value your money. You don't value your life. These were great men and women, great. But what was clear in the book I read was that within a generation, the, the position of a Protestant clergyman, a pastor, had become something that was for the sons of nobility. You know, if he, the firstborn received the manor, the secondborn received the church. And it led to a sophistication and education. There were some, some maybe good effects of it, but in, in many ways, it was the, the decline of many churches and of the, the movement, of the Protestant movement, that the clergy became sophisticated and wealthy. And if you are thinking about pastoral ministry you need to be able to say like Peter I've given it all up to the extent that we do this we are glorified we receive blessings that are that are immense beyond belief and so I at 62 say oh I wish I'd done more in giving up but God is good to sinners and to this sinful man. He has been good through you, through my family, here at Christ the Word, through my family that God has given me. And if this is the reward that comes from very minor acts of, of sacrifice, imagine what it would be like to live all out for Jesus. Imagine what God might do through you. So we come to this, this passage, and I am going to want, after talking about it, to point out to you certain things this passage is not saying, this parable. This is Jesus talking to those of you who are precious. I'm not saying precious in his eyes, but precious in your own eyes. And there are many of us who are precious in our own eyes. We think highly of ourselves. We love ourselves. We think we pretty much have it basically together. And we wish everyone could be like us. Jesus is speaking to you. If you're at all precious, he's saying something to you in these, in these verses. And he's acting like my father. Because my father is like Jesus in certain ways because he followed Jesus and loved him and knew what it was to sacrifice for him. 
And because my father knew the glory of Jesus, it was always his goal in his relationship with at least me and I think every one of his kids to let us know where our intrinsic value lay, what our intrinsic value was. Because any time at all that there was a hint of pride in our lives, dad would look at us. And if it was bad, and it often was bad, he'd say something. Even when there was reason for him to be proud in what we had done, if he detected pride in us, he'd say, as he said to me after I preached one evening for Chuck Swindoll in the church where I was an intern, and I said, he asked me how it went, and I said, Dad, it went well. I got a lot of, con- I've told this story before. His, I know he was proud, but he said to me, David, you're not Chuck Swindoll yet. <laughs> and, and I'm not yet, but praise God, you listen, and God has been kind to me. So Jesus tells this parable to reveal to you your intrinsic worth. What intrinsic worth is there in you and me that God should love you and me? That God should send his son for you and me? That God should die for us? I was reading a uh, I was trying to find a verse that a friend of mine here can quote right off the bat, but I'm not sure he's here this morning, so I'm not going to ask him to do so. Um, I was trying to find a verse about why God chose the Israelites, and it's maybe Deuteronomy something something, but it's, um, he says, you were not a, a great people. You were the least of all people when I chose you. We don't like to hear that. We don't want to hear that we're nothing and God chose nothing. Every one of us in one way or another wants to think that we're something. And so I was looking for that verse. Why did God choose Abraham? Googled it, you know. Why did God choose Israel? I I, I was trying to find this verse. And it wasn't exactly as I remembered it when I found it. So I wasn't sure I actually found it in Deuteronomy. But um, it was fascinating. As I put into the browser, why did God choose Abraham? There were hundreds, thousands of, of web pages devoted to why God chose Abraham. And do you know what they said? I mean, every single one of them in the, the little summary of the page that I could read there on the Google results, almost, I mean, every single one of them said that God chose Abraham because he knew that Abraham was a good man and would follow him. And I thought, man, this world is full of lies and garbage and crap. I mean, you, you can't, I, I won't offend your, your ears by saying what this is, but it is, it's blasphemy. You know, it, blasphemy is worse than barnyard. I mean, it is evil that, that Abraham was a good guy. Abraham, his father, Terah, we're told, worshiped idols beyond the river. We have no indication that Abraham loved God before God came to him. Nothing. In fact, we have the opposite. The claim that Abraham was chosen because he was good and loved God, well, that's bogus. It's garbage. It's so untrue. But it's what you think and I think, you know? I mean, it's not as though this is a foreign concept to us. We may not apply it to Abraham, But I guarantee you, about 
365 days out of the year, you apply it to yourself. You say, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm pretty good. I try. I work. You know, God and I, we have this thing going. God chose me. Yep, he did. And I'm something. Uh, no, I'm nothing. I'm really nothing. <laughs> but isn't the grace of God great? And, and aren't I really a really powerful declarer of his grace. You understand, you can, you can say all you want about how good God is, how merciful, how his grace, and all the whole time you're praising yourself. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but this is the style of American evangelicalism and reform preaching today. God is good, and I'm cool. God is great. I'm wicked. But I'm, I'm still kind of cool, aren't I? You know, even the ways I'm wicked, I'm cool. This is not what the Bible says. This has nothing to do with the God that we worship, and Jesus wants you to know that. And so he tells you this parable to tell you something about what you are, to lead you to judge yourself rightly. And he begins and he ends this word of warning by saying, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Many who are first will be last. Now, let me ask a question. I asked you earlier, do you look at yourself as poor? No, most of you don't. Do you look at yourself as last? Well, the honest truth probably is the same as whether you think yourself poor. You drive like you're first. You argue at the store for the price you, you saw on the shelf like you're first. You do everything as though you're first and then you come to church and say, I'm last. Jesus is saying here, uh, uh, those of you who think you're first, you're not. I mean, you are in your own mind. But in God's view, you're not. Those of you who have actually embraced being last, giving it up, living the way Jesus says, not in your trust in money, not in your trust in your intelligence, not in your trust in your coolness, but loving a great and glorious Savior and saying, I will follow you. You who have become children, you're first in God's eyes. So this story of the king, the story of, the, of this parable is, is actually a kind of disturbing story, if you think about it. And if you think seriously about what it means and you use it in conjunction with other portions of Scripture which teach on things that you may want to make this say, you're going to be limited in what you can say this is teaching. You're going to have to draw it down from the lofty explanations that may have, you may have heard in your past and that you may like to think of to what Jesus is actually saying. The last will be first. The first will be last. That's the point of this parable, right? But it's kind of a disturbing story. It's the story of a landowner. And 
actually a lot of Jesus' parables, let me say, have disturbing parts of them that we ignore. You know, it's like the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son who goes off and is a wastrel and lives a riotous life in a foreign land and then famine hits and he says, oh, what am I doing? And he's feeding pigs and he can't, you know, he's, they're living better than he is and says, I should go back and ask just to be a slave. So he goes home and the, the happy story, we'd like to say it's the ending, is the father running out and embracing him and putting on a banquet for the son, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the older brother who'd been home faithfully, he says, I hate you to his dad. He doesn't exactly say that. But you, you, you give him that, that wastrel son of yours. You, you did it all for him. And what's there for me? I've worked. <laughs> it's like the, that parable of the king who gives a wedding banquet and the, the invited guests, the nobility, you know, they don't come. And so he sends his servants out and says, Get, go out into the highways and the byways and bring them in. A nice story, isn't it? And they all come in. That's not how the story ends. The story ends with the king looking out on the assemblage, you know, the people who are there for the wedding. And he sees a guy who's not dressed appropriately and he says, What? You're not dressed appropriately. Well, the guy's going to say, well, you pulled me off the road. What do you expect? I'm dressed like I'm going to work in the woods. But no. He says, cast him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. These parables, they're not treacly, you know. They're not all sugar. And this is not an all sugar parable. So this landowner goes out early in the morning to hire at dawn, first hour. First hour of daylight. He establishes right off the bat the pay rate. One denarius. It's agreed between him. It's the only time that the money, the pay rate is, is, is mentioned. He agrees with them on one denarius. At the third hour, which is three hours after dawn, he sees men standing idle in the marketplace. He tells them to go to work in his vineyard. And it promises that he'll pay them whatever is right. Doesn't, at this point, specify an amount. He says, I'll pay you whatever is right. The same pattern repeated. Sixth and ninth hours of daylight. And then finally, at the 11th hour, it's a break, it's 3, 3, 3, then 2. At the 11th hour, an hour before the day ends, he goes and he finds men still standing in the marketplace. And he says to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? So they've been there all day. And he has not called them. Right? And they say, well, because no one hired us. So he says to them, okay, you go work in my vineyard too. And at the day's end... He has his foreman, he tells his foreman, this is how you're to pay him off. He doesn't do it himself. He says to his foreman, who evidently is the one who pays, says, call them in and begin with the last ones hired and pay from them back consecutively to the beginning of the day, all right? So, and he says, pay everyone one denarius. Now, the men hired first, see those who were hired at the 11th hour and only worked an hour, and they've worked 12 getting a denarius, and despite their having agreed to work for a denarius, they expect more, and they are embittered when they receive only the promised wage. They, they grumble at this, saying, we are the ones who bore the burden of the work in the heat of the day, but you have made these latecomers equal to us in your pay. You can't do this. I want to stop here at this point and point out a very kind of gnarly, unpleasant truth revealed by the way Christ tells this story. 
The thing that is done here is astonishing. There is a part of this story that is so in-your-face negative that you may not even notice it. Because, but if you lived through it, you'd be aware of it. And if, you, if it hasn't struck you before, don't. it just struck me recently. It's right there and it's obvious. But we have so often treated this as the nice little pleasantry, this nice cute little parable about, oh, everyone gets the same, everyone is equally loved, everyone this and that and so forth and so on. Not listening to the beginning and the end. The last shall be first and the first last, which is inherently not a pleasant thing for a lot of firsts, right? So what we don't notice here and what I didn't notice until recently is this shocking truth, the crazy and offensive thing that Jesus makes part of this sweet little story that's found in verse eight. Verse eight says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. Now, do you catch what Jesus had this landowner do? Do you see it? We would like to say, oh, isn't it nice? He pays everyone the same. He's such a good guy. Excuse me. Look at his benevolence. Look at how kind he is. Look at his generosity. Look at him. Look at the inherent value of all men in his kingdom. You know, men are so good, so, he so values them that everyone gets, everyone gets a car. Everyone gets a car, right? Everyone gets eternal life. Everyone gets eternal life. But if that's the point of this parable, how nice and how happy it is. Why did the landowner tell his foreman to start with the last people? Why did he say start with the last? Wouldn't a good, wise farmer understand, realize that paying the men who only worked one hour the same amount as those who worked 12 would lead to resentment? Hmm? Wouldn't he know that this is exactly what's going to happen? If you're going to give a, a bigger bonus to someone who's, who's worked less time at your company than another person, are you going to trumpet it to the person who has worked longer and gets less? Huh? Are you stupid? <laughs> I mean, that's what you'd have to be to do it this way, right? Am I... Am I right? Yeah, I'm right. You'd have to be stupid unless you were trying to make a very serious point, which is what Jesus is doing here. If you were wise, you would start with those who are hired first and say, thank you for your work. You've done well. You labored through the heat of the day. Here's your denarius. Off you go. And the next ones, you go, hey, I love you. And then you get to the 11th hour and you say, oh, I want you to get one denarius too, but 
quiet, shh, don't tell anyone, right? Maybe that's not how this guy does it. This is not how Jesus tells his story. This guy's not real. Jesus is. Jesus is saying something about heaven. He's telling you about his father. He's telling you about himself. He's telling you how you enter the kingdom of heaven here. All right? The one way the issue disappears, no one's feelings are hurt. Those who are hired first are pleased. Everyone goes away happy. But it's not how it's done. And when the first hired complained, the landowner says, have I been dishonest? Have I cheated you? Did we not agree on a denarius? Are you proposing to require how I must act? Are you proposing to tell me what I must do? I who hired you? And he's doing it in their face. In their face. So what is the point Jesus is making so very starkly here? There are those who want to make this parable about those, about how God rewards everyone the same way. The same pay, heaven for everyone. Everyone gets a car. Everyone gets heaven. No, it's not it. Jesus very, very clearly teaches elsewhere in the Gospels, in his teaching, and elsewhere in the Bible, that there is reward in heaven according with how you have served him. This is not that. It's not about heavenly reward being equal. No. Because Jesus says elsewhere that the one who did not use his talent well gets one. Those who have much will be given more and those who have little will lose. Jesus is not saying everyone gets a car. It's not at the point. You may have heard it and it's not true. It is not true. That's not the point. How does that... How does that work with this parable and this offensive thing that this landowner does? It doesn't. And there may be some who would say this is a statement about the Jewish nation being called, but the outsider Gentiles are added late in the day and the Jews resent it. But Jesus makes that point about the Jewish nation in the parable of the tenants who refused to pay the owner and kill his son when he sent to collect what the owner is due. He tells the story and then he asks the audience what the landlord will do that killed, whose son was killed when he went to collect the rent. And he, the people say he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop. Jesus says, I, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed, speaking of himself. Jesus is, is very clear in speaking about the fate of the Jews, the re, their rejection of him, how it will be worse for Capernaum than in the judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not about that. This is about the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus makes it clear. He begins and ends this parable with a statement about the kingdom of heaven that it's a place where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now the question is, are the ones hired first going to heaven? That's not the point. What is the point is that God prefers the last. What is the difference between these, these two sets of people, the ones at the 11th hour and the ones at the first hour? Well, the ones at the first hour say, we've worked, we've done. 
We've given it our all. We've served. And this group says, yeah, I haven't done much. God says, I prefer this group. And those who say, we've worked, we've worked, we've done. You know what? The difference between this group and this group is not inherent in this group versus this group. It's inherent in God, who is sovereign and who chooses. That is the point of this parable. It rests in God and not in you. And you want to think, and I want to think, no, I'm doing it. I'm in charge. I am the master of my destiny. Yes, I pay lip service to the fact that he's over it, but boy, you know, I've really worked. I've, I've done, you know, I've tithed, I witness, I give money to David Jeremiah and to Billy Graham when he was alive, and I, you know, I, I've done these things. And God is saying, Stop it. Stop it. It's me. It's my grace. It is not you. It is not in you. The minute you start thinking it's in you, you've become first. And so you will be last. So, we're stuck with the reality that God is sovereign. It's his choice that makes the difference. The one group was there all day, and they stayed and they waited, and the landowner called on them. And that first group, if it hadn't been called, it would have been there all day just like that. Evidently, there are people in that vineyard or in that marketplace for <laughs> the vineyard owner who were not called. You've got to assume that. The difference is God. God is sovereign. So you think by, by leading your life the way you've lived it, and whatever form of life that is, you justify it in your mind. We all look at our lives and we try and justify who we are and what we've done. I had to, or I, well, I did, or I, you know, we're all making these constant references to ourselves and justifying ourselves in our minds. And God is saying to you here, it's not you. You didn't get where you are because of you. You're not bright today because you worked hard in school. I mean, if you worked hard in school, it's probably because you had parents who made you work hard in school. Right? And if you had parents who made you work hard in school, well, your God, the God of, of, your, of your life, brought your parents together and had you born to them, rather than to parents who didn't value that. And you want to say, I did it. If you have money today, you think, I worked. I did it. I did it. I'm sure that this is the, the morality of our day, that Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos have worked. They're worthy. I'm not speaking against work, and I'm not speaking against education, but I'm just saying in the end, no, it's not true. God did it. Many bright ideas like those of these men 
have come to people who've invested their all and failed. Hand of God. Circumstances, time. I drive, I've told you this story before, but it's, it lives in me. I drive by a place that's no longer there in Chicago. And every time I drive by that place, I praise God. I thank him. Because at that intersection in July of, no, August of 1986, there was a gas station with a payphone booth, which you guys probably don't know about, those of you who are younger. With a booth you could put a coin in and make a call from out by the road. I was at a, a major life choice point in my life. What was I going to do? My father had just died. I'd come home for his funeral and had stayed to be with my mother for a couple months after his funeral. I'd been offered a job in California, the church where I was, I, the pastor of the church where I was. It wasn't technically in the church that I had been an intern in. And uh, it was Labor Day weekend, so it was September. I'd been invited by an old friend to go on a water skiing trip down to the Ozarks with a group of guys and gals from the church I grew up in. I didn't know whether to leave my mother. I finally said, okay, I'll go. My mother said, you go, David. I'm going to go into the city and stay with Deborah, my sister, in her downtown house. And uh, so I said, okay. So I took my mother's VW Rabbit and I started driving. I picked up a swimsuit and drove towards the church where we were meeting in the parking lot to, to go to the Ozarks. But her car's engine seized at the corner of Gary and Geneva. And I went, oh. yeah, there's no cell phones. Mud's gone into the city. Yeah, I, don't, I can't reach her. There's no one at home. I'm 10 miles from home. What do I do? Maybe God doesn't want me to go to the Ozarks. But So I called from that phone booth. I called the church office. And I said, hey, do you look out the window? Do you see some people gathered there? And the lady who answered knew me. She said, no, they're not there, David. And I said, okay, okay, I'll walk home. It was 10 miles. I said, I'll just, I didn't say that to her. I just said it to myself. Okay, thank you. She said, wait. She said, I'm going to walk down the block to the other parking lot, which was a whole block away. I said, no, no. She walked down. The next voice was my friend. He said, I'm going to come and pick you up. You stay at that gas station. If that phone booth had not been there, I would not have gone on that weekend trip, which I did end up going on. If I did not go on that trip, I would not have met my wife because I met her, her, her brother on that trip. But I also on that trip met a number of cute girls. And I thought, you know, I haven't met so many cute girls in California. Hard to believe, I know. But I, I said, I'm going to move home. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back here. You know, there are young women here, and I was 27. And that trip convinced me to, to move back to Chicago. The week I moved back, I met Cheryl. If I had not found a phone booth at that corner, I wouldn't know you guys. I wouldn't be here. That phone booth, by the providence of God, was the hinge of my life. But I could give you hinges like that on every day, right? The almost accidents that I didn't have that would have killed me. All these sorts of things. God is sovereign. 
God is in control. Everything you have and are is under, whether you get up and tie this shoe first in the morning or this shoe first is God, not you. And you feel, no, I'm in charge of this. Oh no. (laughs) He's got the hair on your head numbered. He has your shoelace order established. This is our God. And when he tells you to give it all up, because he's sovereign, he means it. So I want to end with one final truth about God. He's sovereign. This is what the story's telling us. The story is telling us one other thing, that in his sovereignty, he prefers certain types of people. He prefers children, childlikeness. He prefers the poor who have to trust him like a child because they don't have money. He prefers the poor. He prefers those who aren't the brightest people in the room, the brightest bulb on the tree because he loves those who are not confident in themselves. What are you? Are you confident and capable or are you a child? Which are you going to be? A child or strong? Our God is an awesome, unbelievable God. And he stands with the poor, the weak, the childlike, and the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. That's the point of this parable. You're not in control. God is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life you've led me through, for that phone booth, Father, for the good you've poured into my life, for this congregation that you've given to me the privilege of shepherding, for these lives, Father, that have been born this last week and the hope and the confidence we have that these children will know you and serve you. We pray, Father, that we may be children before you, that we may not trust in who we are or what we have, but that our only hope may be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We pray in his name. Amen.